Welcome to the Massacre Matinee. This podcast is uncensored and may include but is not limited to foul language and gore topics. If this podcast is not for you, now's your chance to stop listening. Welcome back to the Matinee. It's great to be back. It's my turn to be in charge. Oh man. Are you you ready for that? I'm so ready. I'm not. (laughs) So... (laughs) We both like hearing stories, and we hate telling stories. Isn't that the best? So, for mine this week, we're going to do a little thing called the Italian Hall Disaster. Have you ever heard of the Italian Hall Disaster? I actually have not. You have not? So, Calumet, Michigan, huge, huge mining area. I've been there. They've still got tons of mine mm-hmm. tours and stuff I've like that. I actually haven't been to Calumet. It's actually a pretty neat area. There's there's a lot of copper mines up there. Mm. It was it was a huge thing up there. And so up there's a company called Calumet and Hecla Company. Mm-hmm. It's the mining company. I, I'm pretty sure they're still around. I'm like 90% sure that they're still around. But I assume so. Back then, they owned like everything yeah. up there. Like the mining companies owned the towns up there. So basically the monopoly of the... Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of the people that came... And it was very, it was a lot of Finnish people, a lot of Croatian mm-hmm. people, a lot, it was a very huge Finnish culture up there. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people that came, they came because they were told, you know, you might not speak the language, but if you're willing to work, there's mines up there that'll give you a job. Mm-hmm. And that's how a lot of these people ended up in that. And it started becoming, you know, more and more men of the family would go do that. And a lot of the money that they made actually ended up going back to the mining company in the form of, like, rent and buying groceries and things like that. Yeah, so they so really just... didn't get a paycheck. It was just exactly. kind of, here, was... you can hold this for a little bit. <laughs> exactly. It was this big, tumultuous little ball of just never-ending problems. Yeah. And uh, a lot of the mining families were starting to get, you know, frustrated and having some problems with that mm-hmm. because they were hearing stories from, like, mines out in Montana where the workers are getting paid way, way better than they are. They're, they're getting this during, paid... What, 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 um, year was this? So this was back in 1913. Okay, so this so was like way, when... way back. I probably should have said that a lot yeah. sooner. Well, I guess this way was back when, like, in, like the this... gold... It was back, yet yeah, when a lot of people were traveling for ores and a lot of mines yeah. were starting to get up and going and... I mean, cars were kind of starting to be a thing. Right. Cars were pretty young yet. It was it was really, really early. And they definitely weren't a huge thing up here. And there's still a lot of railroads all over the place up here that were used by the mining companies mm-hmm. to ship the ores around and things. But back on topic just a little bit. Yeah. So Calumet and Heckler had their mining company, and they had... Thousands of people. Mm-hmm. There was, I, I was somewhere over 15,000 miners that worked in their mines, and they owned just about all of the mines up here, and all of their mines were affected mm-hmm. because the workers started getting pissed off. They're like, you know, everything out in Montana, they're getting paid so much more money than we are, and, and they've only got to work eight, eight and a half hour days, and, and they don't have all these dangerous conditions and this bad ventilation. A mm-hmm. lot of things were going wrong in the mines. It wasn't actually uncommon for around one, sometimes more than one person to die in a Calumet and Hecla mine per week. Yeah. Per week. So over 60 guys a year, that's it's actually a little over one person per week. Ooh. I mean, I know the ones that we have, even in our hometown, they were losing people. Oh yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty, I mean, pretty gnarly. I mean, we live on a mine, technically. Technically, yeah. Yeah. Technically, which is a little sketchy sometimes, but... 
Yeah, especially knowing that it's, like, slowly sinking. <laughs> We're not going to talk too much about that. I, I like my anxiety down here, thanks. Yeah. So, my... I mean, my, my house will go before yours dies. Reassuring. <laughs> so the miners are getting pissed off because mm-hmm. they're like, you know, Montana, they work eight hour day. They get a whole lot more money than really? we do. They're only doing eight hours? Eight to eight and a half hours. But the huh. miners around here were expected to work 11 to 12 hour days. Oh. And a lot of the cases around here, so the the mines, in, in the mines, they were using these, uh, like, powered drills mm-hmm. to try and split into the rock and stuff. And a lot of times the ventilation was really bad. You couldn't see super far. And they started implementing a one-man drill system. (laughs) So one drill would have one guy on it, and that's it. You couldn't see, like, ten feet on either side of you because the lighting was bad, because Mm -hmm. it was smoky, because it was dark. And lots lots and lots of reasons why it was as dangerous as it was. Yeah. And they were getting upset about it because Mm -hmm. it was costing them more and more men just by having them alone. And they wanted those two to three man teams back so they could, mm-hmm. you know, look out for each other and take care of each other when it was, like, dangerous. Right. And it was so bad that in some mines, you were lucky if you had a bucket to take a shit in. No. Um, so, Calumet's not that far from, like, the Houghton Hancock area, right? They're, like, right next to each other. Oh. So I've actually been into, I think it's called... Mine? Yep, that's the big one up on the hill. I've been into that one. Yeah. And even going in, like, they don't even use that mine. Like, they do it for tours, be like, hey, this is what it looks like, and everything like that. During Halloween, they actually go, and they turn it into a haunted house. Really? And then take you down into the mines. It's actually so cool. We should do it sometime. Um, And I had been in there, and I couldn't even imagine being in there. Because, I, I mean, I have breathing issues and everything like that and asthma. Mm-hmm. But, like, the air is so heavy in there. And you're surprisingly deep underground. You are like, you very deep. You wouldn't realize how far down you are. And the mm-hmm. Quincy Mine in particular is one of the deepest mines in the yeah. area. I believe they said it's got somewhere around or over 100 levels of just depth. Back to the topic at hand. Yeah. We're talking about the Italian Hall disaster. Mm-hmm. Now that we've got a little bit of history, you know, yeah. mining... It's a huge culture it's up there. Shitty. <laughs> it, it's shitty. It's a huge culture, and it's very, very dangerous. And these miners just want to have safer conditions so they can go home to their families. Yeah, they can't speak English, but they still have families, you know? By the time they finally get enough people involved in this mm-hmm. union, they have the, this. there's a union that started coming up into the area called the Western Federation of Miners. And originally it was, you know, Western. It, yeah. it was just starting to kind of stretch up towards this area because they're like, hey, you know... There's a lot of miners up here. It's you know, a lot of, west. A lot, a lot of <laughs> copper mines up yeah. here. There's a lot of people working in the mines up mm-hmm. here. Maybe we can, you know, spread our little umbrella of support to them. Yeah, because our area was like, you're either logging wood or you're mining. Or you're, or you're mining something, exactly. So they started spreading over here and they started saying, hey, you know, miners, you guys aren't being treated very well. Right. We've got a lot of miners over here that, that you know, we help work with them and, and get better conditions. So you've got a better chance oh, of going home. Oh, they probably jumped on that so fast. A lot of them did. So, originally when the Western Federation of Miners got into the area, it was actually still in 1912. Mm. And in order for them to initiate the strike, they actually had to get, I believe it was 15,000 miners signed up through through the area with the union. 
And they <laughs> that were, is more than our town. <laughs> they were only at 9,000 at the time. But oh. this is a lot, a lot of different mines. And they actually right. had, like, a lot of different guys working mm-hmm. in these mines. So it took them a little while to get those numbers up. And by the time they got those numbers up, it was July of 1913. So that was oh. when that was when the strike actually started. So it took them a solid like year, year it, and a half. Yeah, it to it get took people. some time to be like, no, you got to understand, we're we're gonna help you get better conditions, oh, and right? Better wages. People are probably and... thinking, oh, well, this boss is treating me shitty. Like I'm just gonna go to this place. Like they're probably also gonna treat me shitty. Well, the other part of the problem is there's also a big language barrier. Oh, yeah, that's Because true. a lot of them are still, they just came over and they're speaking Finnish or other languages. I'm sorry, I don't know other languages for mm-hmm. the other, but there was, there was a lot of diversity there. And pr- like I said, primarily it was Finnish. And a lot of the time, the management of the mines, they weren't always so great about offering translation services. Right. And... That actually happened a lot in this case as well when it came to the investigation portion of everything. So, it's Christmas Eve, Mm -hmm. 1913. Women's Federation of Miners, or the the Western Federation of Miners, they have a women's auxiliary because everything had a women's auxiliary back then. My man does something, I'm going to help. Make goods. I'm or, gonna make their sandwiches. Or I'm gonna make fix clothes. <laughs> exactly. So. Everybody did, and pasties are a huge thing, you know. Right. Especially up in this area, it was a huge, huge think... meal item. And if you've never heard of a pasty, it's kind of like a pie, but it's like handheld, almost like a hot pocket. Kind of looks like a calzone. Kind of looks like a calzone, yeah. And miners would always bring these down into the mines with them because it was warm food mm-hmm. and it was really good. And that's what we've got today. Ooh. But the problem is I can't give you the recipe. Yeah, a lot of people in this area definitely, like, hold on to their yeah. recipe. So the real, true pasty experience is to know a Uber grandma. Yes. And I've got some or Uber grandma pasties here. Or someone who is, here. like, very Finnish, because pasties yes. were a Finnish food, and the pasty that we kind of have and know is kind of a, like... It's a blend. There's it's, there's it's, a lot of cultural It's not the same as they would have here. in Finland. Like, here we have a lot of, like, rutabaga or rhubarb. No, rutabaga is actually a good point, because mm-hmm. there are rutabagas in these pasties now. So these ones are actually uh, rutabaga and carrot, but mm-hmm. as you're saying, you know, regionally what goes into it changes a little bit. Which yeah, is I pretty... mean, they have breakfast pasties. Um, I mean, Teddy loves his just meat and potatoes. And Nothing it... wrong with meat and potatoes. But here's a, here's the real question: Do you cover yours in gravy or do you cover yours in ketchup? Ketchup. Yeah. But I was, I was... You'll get some 80-year-old grandpa that's like, I, that in gravy. <laughs> I was taught how to properly eat a pasty by a born and raised youper. Oh. And I'm spending a lot of my free time trying to earn my youper stripes. But, <laughs> but, so Christmas Eve, 2013, women's auxiliary, they're like, you know what? This strike started back in July. These people still aren't working yet. The strike's still going on. They're not willing to change. We're not willing to change. We need better conditions. Mm-hmm. They're not going to give it to us. But it's Christmas Eve. And a lot of the people that worked in these mines and that were involved in the strike, they didn't have 
the money or the food to be able to feed their families for mm-hmm. Christmas. So the women's auxiliary is like, come on down to the Italian hall. We're going to make a whole bunch of food and, and we'll have events and we'll, we got a stage up there and, and we'll just, we'll have a good time. We'll have a party. And the Italian hall, their banquet hall area mm-hmm. is actually upstairs. So you go up a flight of stairs and then it opens up into this big open area yeah. with a stage on one end and tables and windows everywhere and really big open area. A lot of people loved using it. So Christmas Eve, 1913, everybody's up there partying and having a good time. And all of a sudden, somebody yells, fire. And this hall is crowded. There's over 600 people in this hall. And what the people didn't know at the time is there were other exits. Yeah. Lots of other exits. There there were ladders and there were uh, other emergency stair sets Mm -hmm. and things like that. But everybody remembers, you know... I came up this one stairway. I know that I can get back down going that yeah. one step. People are instinctive creatures in in that regard. Like they know I came this way, I can go that way. And a lot of the people there were also children. Oh. Lots of children. It was a lot of the children of a lot of the mining families. So everybody panics and they start running for this one stairwell. Plus the language barrier. They're not hearing if anyone's yelling like, "No, go this way." Well, they're there's so much language barrier, but when somebody yells fire and people start panicking and running, nobody's, run with the masses. nobody's looking, listening yeah. for the words. They're, they're just running with the masses. Mm-hmm. So everybody starts rushing this doorway, and despite what some stories might say, the doors did both open outward, mm-hmm. but somewhere on the way down the stairs, somebody tripped and fell. Oh. And everybody started tripping and falling and tripping and falling, and all of a sudden it was just a big pile at the bottom of this stairwell, nobody had even quite reached the door to be able to open the door. It was just piling upon piling upon piling. And in that stairwell, 73 people died. Oh, wow. And 59 of them were kids. They actually, there is, if you go online, you can look up the Italian hall and you can, you can find a list of every single person that died. And they were as young as months old. Like, babies were dying in this stairwell. And it's all because someone ran upstairs and yelled fire. And what's crazy is, to this day, nobody really knows who yelled fire. And a lot of people were interviewed after this. Because mm-hmm. the, the the fire department did show up. You know, people were right. yelling fire. Somebody called the fire department. The fire department showed up. And it's actually on record in their reports that there was no fire found. There was no mm-hmm. fire there. Because there was another theory that maybe another part of the building was on fire. There was no, no fire. fire. Somebody had just yelled fire to incite panic. Mm-hmm. Following all of this, there were some interviews done by witnesses, but the problem was they're asking questions in English, there's no translation, they're mm. demanding answers. So a lot of the people that they interviewed, they either didn't understand the question because they didn't understand the language, right. or they didn't see what happened. Right. And that was just in the initial the local investigation Mm -hmm. into this. And it got to a point where there was a more thorough investigation done into it later on. After three days, you know, the coroner still didn't have a cause of death. Yeah. He he couldn't distinctively be like, this is exactly why they died. And a lot of them, it it was a stampede. A lot of them were crushed and suffocated and stuff like that. But this is 1913. I mean, they, things were, they didn't have as much information about how things functioned then as they do now, I guess. No, they didn't have the forensics or any kind of thing like that. It was just kind of like if someone didn't see anything, they didn't know who did it. What's crazy is months after all of this happened, though, 
you know, there there ended up being so much hype about this mm-hmm. that there became a federal investigation. Oh, really? Yeah, and the feds, they actually did it a lot better, I would say. Yeah. Uh, they actually brought in translators, and under oath, eight people, they, they brought in 20 witnesses, brought translators mm-hmm. for everybody, and under oath, eight of them said that they had seen a man with an anti-trade union pin being the one to yell fire. Oh. There was, I believe it was called the Citizens Alliance or something. Mm. Uh, they were all very anti-union. We don't need a union, we can do this ourselves kind of mm. thing. And they all had a very distinct pin. And a lot of people are saying they saw a man with that pin being the one to yell fire. Which kind of, you know, got some people pissed off. And a lot mm-hmm. of the families of people that died actually had heard about these things as well. Yeah. So later on, that anti-union committee was like, hey, you know, we're sorry that your families died. Here's $25,000 to be able to help you guys out. That's a lot of money that's back then. That's a lot then. of Ni- money. 25000 in 1913. That's millions now. Yeah. I'm going to do a quick and search. I want to see how that much is. While you're doing that, I'll keep going. So the families refused the money. They didn't want it because they didn't want it from the anti-trade union or yeah. the anti-trade alliance, the anti-union alliance. So they were like, "No, we don't. We don't want your money because we like these Western Federation of Miners guys. You know, they they set us up with a kick-ass party. It's not their fault that our families die, but they're gonna help us. They promised. So twenty-five thousand in nineteen thirteen is around seven hundred and seventy thousand, which is a huge increase." I can't imagine getting offered even a portion of that much money. They were like, we're going to get the money from Western Union or Western Federation of Miners. They promised they'd help us. And the president of, I believe it was the president of the Western Federation of Miners, he actually came out and was basically damning the Citizens Alliance, saying you guys are terrible people because it was one of you that yelled fire and caused this big problem. And... He, he op- very openly did it in public, which actually resulted in him getting shot. He wasn't killed, but he got kidnapped, and then they shot him, and then they threw him on a train, and he sent him down towards Chicago and said, don't, us, don't let us ever see you back up here again. That is such a, sorry, like, that is super, such a 1913, like, way to get rid of somebody. Super <laughs> mafia, you know? Right, well, well, I mean, the mafia, I mean, it, I mean, for, like, 30 years earlier, but, um, 30 years later, you know, Al Capone and everything like that well, was in this area. Yeah, and the, the, um... Little Bohemia with yeah. John Dillinger, which mm-hmm. is another thing we're going to end up talking about in the future. But, uh, yeah, so it was the president, by the way. His name is Charles Moyer. That was his name. Mm. So he w- rode that train down to Chicago, and uh, he got some medical care, and he publicly said, you know, I vow to come back to Michigan. I'm not going to let you do this to these people. Wow. And so, that that's that takes some balls to do because in that time, like someone could kill you and like throw you quite literally down a mine shaft and you would not be found. Quite literally, and and this whole Italian hall situation stemmed a lot of things off of it. There's actually a song about it. Mm-hmm. Um, Woody Guthrie wrote a song called the 1930 13 Massacre, and he made a few speculations that 
the anti-union thugs were holding the doors closed from the other side and and that this was all just a big thing and uh, he called them copper boss thugs that's what it was but there's also you know this is a big thing up in this area and a lot of research has been done on it and uh, there's a youtuber named Steve Leto he does a thing called Leto's Law and he talks about a lot of like law cases and he actually wrote two books on this one back in 2006 and one in 2013 the first one being called Death's Door the truth behind Michigan's largest mass murder and the second one being called the truth uh, Death's Door the truth behind the Italian Hall of Disaster and the strike of 1913 it's supposed to be very in-depth if you want to do more reading. He actually did yeah. a lot of research. Is that the one that lives around here? Yes. Yeah? Yes. Yeah, Leto's Law. Oh, it's Leto then. Leto. It's Leto. Leto? Yeah. Okay. Well, then I've been saying it wrong. But... Yeah, but it's, so it's Leto. Leto. All right. I'm sorry, Steve. <laughs> I'm not sure if you're going to hear this, but if you do, cool. Come talk sometime. <laughs> And there was also, there was a documentary, a couple of documentaries, but one in particular that stuck out, it was a PBS documentary, it was called Red Metal. Um, unfortunately, can't find it. Yeah. Um, you can, it, it pops up on Amazon Prime, but it says it's unavailable in this area. I'm not sure if it's a general in this area thing, or if mm. it's just not coming back to Amazon. Maybe. So... But there's there's quite a bit of research that you can do into it. And that is our first massacre. Yeah. For the matinee. And I mean that's just a horrible way to go, is just you literally just got crushed by other people. Yeah, and sometimes you know, in some cases it was family members. <sighs> there was people that lost like both of their children or a couple more than yeah. one of their children. A lot of times, you know, it was a big a big family community, so some of the kids, some kids, the kids were and there. The elderly that died. Well, some kids were there without their parents. Like somebody was like, you know, I'm going down to the Italian hall. I'm gonna take the kids down. Does, mm -hmm. does little Jimmy want to come with me or something like right. that? Like, oh yeah, you know, I gotta do this, this, and this. Why don't you go down? I'll meet you guys down later or something. Yeah, or go something have some else free is going food, on. You know? but, yeah. And so there was a lot of children there, oh. and that. It was a really dark spot in the history of Calumet, and the building actually stayed standing all the way up until 1984. Mm. They didn't give an exact reason that I could find as to why they tore it down. It could have been for a couple of different reasons, probably. like structural integrity or something yeah, like that. Yeah, probably some building codes that didn't meet or something like that. Probably, but they did keep the original archway from the door, and they put a plaque up that explains what happened, and Leto... Steve Leto, actually, some of his research got that sign changed. Because yeah. originally it said the doors opened inward, and his research was able to help prove that it didn't, the, the doors didn't open inward. They both opened outward. Oh. People were just so piled up there that nobody reached the doors. Yeah. So. Wow. Like, that's, I, I really do think that cases where people, like, die literally just from being so close to each other and falling on each other is the saddest thing because there's not really a way that you can prevent that because it just happens so fast. It's literally, it's, it's an avalanche of, yeah. of people. It literally is. It's just, especially going down the stairs. Yeah. Like, and <coughs> with a lot of it being children, I mean, they're young. They can't really control their bodies, and they're fragile. 
<clears throat> yeah. So, so one kid falls down the stairs, and people start landing on top, and other kids start mm-hmm. landing on... It takes... Because it takes one adult to hit land on, like, two kids. And if they're landing on each other, like, on the stairs, that staircase is yeah. going into your ribs, that's ribs puncturing lungs, like... Very dangerous situation, mm-hmm. just entirely. So... I hope you guys enjoyed today's matinee. It was a bit more of a massacre than yeah. a murder, but it can loosely be called a murder. There's still a lot of people that believe. Yeah, because I guess they never did find who yelled they fire. They never truly found the guy that yelled fire. So, massacre, murder, and River eating a cat <laughs> River food eating bowl. Cold and me dying from coughing because I'm getting over a cold. Just in time for the, the beginning of the podcast. Yep. I was fine. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. I was fine all day at work and then we get here and already I'm just like, you know what? I think I will simply cease to exist. There she goes. Oh no. Well, I've been Mingus. I've been Panda. Hope you guys enjoyed the matinee and we will see you next week for whatever happens. Yeah. It's it's going to be something. I'm not sure what we've got planned yet, but it's going to be a good one. Bye. Hey, it's Mingus with the Massacre Matinee. If you like this episode and want to hear future episodes, follow us on Spotify.